love testimonies. I, I love testimonies because uh, we have been going through the Bible. We just started all over again. For those of you who are new, first time here, want to share with you what we do here at Heights. At Heights, we do things a, a little bit differently. Um, we read together as a congregation six days a week. And then our study, our, our scripture that we share together on Sundays is based upon our reading. And so if you'd like to be a part of that reading. We're going through the Bible in five years. You can go to the information desk. Say, I've got a little reading plan that has the entire year laid out of what we're going to be doing. So you know on Sunday what we're going to hear from because you've read it during the week. So we encourage you to, to follow along with us. This past week, we started on the uh, life of Abraham. And so at, at this point, for most of our reading, he's Abram. Um, so if I kind of mix up between Abram and Abraham, you guys will know it's the same person. Uh, and those of you who are new, maybe have, haven't gone through those portions of the scriptures, I'm telling you, same person. So if you hear Abram or Abraham, we're talking the same guy. And Abraham is known as the father of faith throughout the scriptures. And I find it very ironic because we're going to be studying him for this week and for next week, looking at his life. And I think it's, it is a, an apt description of what it means to be a person of faith. If you've ever wondered, what, what does a life of faith look like? What does a walk with God look like? I think Abraham is a good place to go. It has all of the elements that, that even today, as believers in Christ, we still walk through and, and quite frankly, struggle with. And so the title of my sermon today is called An Honest Walk of Faith, based upon what we've read in Genesis chapter 12 through 17. How many of you remember what it was like to come to Christ? Raise your hand. I mean, if you remember, I remember what it was like. Some of you may have grown up in a Christian home, and you might be saying, well, I was always surrounded with it, so it was not this defining moment. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But for many, maybe, maybe like myself or maybe like you, maybe you're the first person in your family or maybe the first of, of a number of generations to actually grab onto that faith, and there's an impact that happens as a result of that. And you remember what happened as a result of you believing in Christ for the first time. You hear all the promises of what Jesus had come to do and realize that those promises were meant for any who would believe upon him. And recognizing that, it just, it just absolutely wrecks you on the one end and changes you on the other. I think we see that when we look at the life of Abraham. And so we're going to look at these characteristics of this honest walk of faith because I believe that in these things that we've seen in this first half that cover about 24 years of Abraham's life, we're going to see a lot of what we recognize in our walk of faith as well. So if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at the beginning of this very personal relationship that Abram would have with God. So 
Starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Morah at Shechem at the time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills of the east Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so we see that God calls Abraham or Abram. He's 75 years old at the time. Now they lived a lot longer than what we live today. So let's just say that Abram is middle-aged. I know we would think 75 middle-aged is kind of weird, but that's, that's where we're at with Abram's life. So he's middle-aged right now. And he's told, leave your country, leave your family, go to the place that I've called you. And so let's find out where he traveled from and to real quick, because I have a map. So, woohoo! All right, so we see up at the very top, we see... Haran up there. And then we see all the way down where we see Shechem and Bethel. This is exactly where he traveled to. It is approximately 250 to 300 miles. Now, I don't know about you. 250, 300 miles in today's day and age where we can travel it four or five hours in a car doesn't seem like much. But in reality, what what God is telling Abram to do is to kind of sever ties with his family in order to follow him. Now, I live, since I moved here, 1,600 miles away from my family. And I can tell you that distance has a tendency to make strangers of us all. Doesn't matter. Some of us have family that live in other parts of New Mexico. New Mexico is a big state. Maybe they live 250, 300 miles away. And I would bet if you have family in those areas, you don't see them near as often as you would like to see them. I would dare say that if you had family who lived in town, you don't see them as often as you would like to see them. There's something about moving away from your household that changes the relationship that you have with those who are closest to you. What God had called Abram to do was to follow him and he gave him a promise that whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all nations on the earth will be blessed because of you. And upon that promise, the zeal of Abram of wanting to follow the Lord led him to the land of Canaan. So I asked you guys that question. Do you remember what it was like when you first knew Jesus? 
when you first came to know Jesus, I'll do anything for you. Because it's going to be a radical departure of how you've lived your life before you knew Jesus. And it's met with an enthusiasm. I want to do this. I want to see the change. You know why? Because I know that Jesus has died for me and he has a promise for me of eternal life. That if I follow him, I am part of his family forever. It changes everything. All of a sudden, every other relationship, everything that that happens in your and my life pales into comparison with the brightness of the promise of Christ and what he means to us. If you know that amazing transformational change, that's why I asked you to raise your hand. You can remember. You remember how it impacted you. You remember the changes that you made, all the differences that God had began to produce in your life at that moment. The first lesson on this honest walk of faith is it begins with a passionate zeal to follow God because you believe his promises. Genesis 12 through 16 only represent 11 years of Abram's life. He starts at 75. By the end of chapter 16 in Genesis, he's only, I say only, he's only 87. 86, excuse me. Only 11 years. All that we read in between happened in that 11-year period of time. And then there's a, a skip of 13 years. And it reminds me of how quickly things move when we're passionate about Christ. You know, within five years of me coming to Jesus, five years, I came to Christ in 1992, that Easter time. Within five years, I I had believed that I had gotten a calling from God to be a pastor and had made my way to a Christian college and I was already attending a Christian college by then. To be a pastor within five years. Such a short period of time. Now, the younger you are, the, the larger that five-year you know, period of time seems. But I'm telling you, as somebody who's older, wiser, I hope, five years goes like that. Parents with kids, five years goes like that. Parents grandparents with grandkids five years goes even quicker doesn't it you blink and everything's changed right within 10 years of coming to christ i was a newly minted youth pastor of heights christian church within 10 years came to christ totally transformed my life. God called me off to school, and then he called me out to here, 1,600 miles away. Let me tell you something. I have not regretted a single moment of that. But it has come with a fervent desire to to follow God, and it's come with a distance that couldn't be helped. Because God called me here, 1,600 miles away. I see my family very few and far in between. Not because I don't love them. I love my family. I care about them very much. Shannon has left her family. She cares about her family very much. But God has called us here. 
That's what a calling of God does. At the point that I'm enthusiastic about God, everything else pales in comparison. And I remember when we moved out here, everybody was like, why are you going out there? Because God has called us. It's an exciting adventure. And God has that same adventure for anybody who would call on the name of Jesus. I'm not saying you're moving 1,600 miles away from your family. But it's going to be a a trip that not everybody's going to understand. And it might cause a distance relationally between those of you and your family when you start to serve Jesus with all of your heart. I mean, let's take a look back at the disciples in Luke chapter 5 because we see a similar calling with the disciples as Jesus calls them in that same following that Abram is called. Chapter 5, verse 1, one day as Jesus was standing on the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw that at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. And as we continue to read through the Gospels, this was the initial calling, just like Abram's calling. Leave this land, leave your father, leave their household, and go to the land that I tell you. Jesus is inviting the disciples to a great adventure. We're not worthy. Don't worry, from now on you'll catch men. Come and follow me. And they left everything, and they followed him. And, of course, we read about their lives in the, in the gospel accounts and how they were transformed by Jesus. And eventually, guess what they're going to be doing? They're going to be going everywhere and found outside of their home in Jerusalem eventually because of this calling of Christ. But it starts with a passionate zeal to follow God. Do you think they were pretty excited? I mean, you read the gospel accounts, they're pretty excited about the promises of God. We're catching men. We're called to make disciples. We're going to all these places. We're revealing who the Messiah is. How awesome is that? And it's worth leaving everything. Everything. You guys realize that in five years, Jesus will have died and rose again. Then 10 years. We're seeing the spread of the church. Then 20 years, everybody's expelled from Jerusalem because of the persecution. It's crazy to think of the commitment that God is asking 
and that people are so willing to give because of the promises that are so great for you and me. And I wish I could just say, oh, you know what? It's been nothing but just a a bed of roses, right? I just lay down and it's so soft and comfortable. Roses have thorns. And unfortunately, some of those thorns threaten to upend our faith. That initial zeal that we have for God that I'll do anything and everything for him. So I've walked with God for, oh my goodness, 30 years now. And all along the way, I'd love to say I've walked with God so perfectly. Just just follow my example in every area. Nope. Nope. Please don't. Please don't. I would love to say that I've done everything right as it pertains to walking in holiness with God. I haven't. And and as I read the scriptures, I don't see that anybody's going to have that type of walk with Jesus. I'm sorry, we have a struggle with the flesh that constantly wants to revive itself into our lives. And the biggest problem for following Jesus, you and I face every day in the mirror. Which leads us number two on this honest walk of faith. It comes with stumbles along the way that threatened up and the faith that you possess. It comes with stumbles along the way that threaten to upend the faith that you possess. Let's take a look as we look at Abram's life since he's the father of faith and we want to get an idea of what these stumbles look like. Let's take a look at a couple of them that we're in our reading this week. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. If we move on a little bit later, Genesis chapter 16, which ironically comes very soon after God has appeared to him and given him a promise of a son again. Genesis chapter 16 starts this way. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me and me. And you, or you and me. Sounds like they've been watching some of the cable news, you know, talk shows, right? And I have all these confession people up here. 
it's like the the strange stuff we see in our culture that's being normalized like they that was what's happening right there because that was what was normal in that culture at the time. These two accounts that we look at in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 16 are very ironic because in these sections of scripture we see no seeking of God for an answer. When he goes down to Egypt, what does he do? In his own, I'm going to go down there. They're going to kill me. Here's what you should do. You should say you're my sister so they'll treat me well. And though God blesses and fulfills his promise to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, and we see the curses of God coming upon the Egyptians that are there, and they realize, wait a second, this is his wife. Why did you do this to us? While God fulfills his part of the bargain, Abraham hasn't exactly been faithful. He didn't consult God. Hey, God, I, I'm, I'm worried about this. No, pushed up in pressure, he relied back on his own wits. How many of you, when you're pressured with the pressures of life, it doesn't matter, financial, relational, doesn't matter. How many of you are tempted to run back to an old way of living? I am. I have no problem saying it. I feel that temptation every single day. We are told that we fight against the flesh that wants to resurrect itself all the time. And we're called to follow the Spirit of God. Well, here, Abram, guess what he does? He's following the flesh. He's doing what the world around him does or what he's done in the past. He's making his own way, creating a way for himself without regard to God. God gives him this great promise and wanting to help God out. You know, God, I don't know if you got this or not. Sarah and Abram come up with a plan. Sleep with my maidservant. Anybody ask God if that was a good idea? Nope. That whole passage of scripture, read all the way through. There's no seeking of God. You know why? Because this is what everybody else does. Well, I guess it's all right. Don't we see the same thing in our culture today? Our culture today would say living together is the next step, is in a committed relationship. Let's live together next. We're not going to consult God and think, find out what he thinks about it, but we're going to help him along, and, and hopefully this will coalesce our relationship. And every study, whether you look at secular studies or whether you look at Christian studies, show that living together provides more strife. At living together, you have nearly twice the chance of divorce before marriage. Oh, if only somebody would have told us, right? And it's so funny because then after this happens and Hagar conceives and she's like, I'm pregnant, you're not, that makes me better than you. And they have this strife in the household. Sarah has the audacity of saying, this is your fault, Abraham. I gave her to you, and now she's conceived, and she's mocking me. Oh, my goodness. And God's got to be saying, I didn't sanction any of that. And you know what's so funny is we laugh is that 
how many times do we create our own problems through disobedience and we blame God? Yeah, I know I wasn't supposed to go and do that, but I did it anyway. Now I'm reaping the con- God, why am I going through this? Who are you talking to? Because I know you ain't talking to me because you didn't talk to me before you did that. Because if you had talked to me before you did that, I would have told you no. But you went ahead and went through it, went through with it, and now you're dealing with the consequences, and that's my fault? Yeah, I'm pretty sure God's up there going like, I don't think so. This is your fault. Abraham is going through some unnecessary problems, and I say unnecessary because he didn't have to go through it. And you and I, in the mirror every single day, fight with the person in that mirror to do what we want when pressure comes along in our life, and we want to do it our way or the world's way because it seems better or easier than to do it God's way, to consult him and say, God, I want to do what you want me to do no matter what it might cost me because I know in you is the blessing. Doesn't mean it'll be easier. Doesn't mean you won't be persecuted. It's in Christ is the blessing. I'm going to follow you anyway, even if it's harder, because in you, there's no regret. If I follow the world, I'm going to be regretting. You know, the the funny thing is, one of the, the biggest detriments to faith is actually living with somebody else, sleeping around with other people. You know why? Because it puts us in direct opposition from the way that God has created marriage. We feel that tension. And so when we live together and we come into a place like this, where we start talking about the word of God, we, we recognize the incongruity of our life with a life of holiness with God. And if we allow that tension to stay, we want to get rid of that tension any way possible. And there's only two ways to get rid of it. One is through repentance, a turning away from those things and making things right before God. That might mean breaking up with that significant other. Moving out and saying no more until we're married. Making things right and repenting before God and everybody else and saying, nope, not doing that. Not doing that. But if we don't do that, we allow that to stay longer, then we're more willing to say, well, if I want this tension to go, either she goes or God goes. And it's just easier not to deal with that tension every single week when we go to church. So let's just stop going to church. Let's just stop getting around people who are going to tell us that we need to get married. Let's stop getting around people who want to keep us accountable. Let's stop hearing from people who tell us the problems that we have are because we're being disobedient, that there are consequences to our actions. This is what you see falling away. This is what we're seeing in our culture right now. As the sexual ethic has been so put on the forefront and so perverse within our culture, people are choosing not to deal with that tension. And they choose not to deal with that tension by simply abandoning God. Now, remember Abram is the father of faith, so he doesn't take that route, and thankfully so. Because as a believer in Christ, I've made enough errors as a believer in Christ, not before, as a believer. 
And for anybody here who may be from the outside who think Christians are hypocrites because we don't walk proof perfectly, there's nothing in the scripture that says I'm going to. It's not an excuse to do it, but it's a reality that I'm still going to fall short. And when I fall short, my only proper response is repentance, is a turning away from those things. All of us have done it. If you are a believer in Christ, after you have come to belief in Christ, you have messed up, you have sinned. Maybe even going back to old habits you thought were totally gone from your, from your life. And when it happens, you're like, I can't believe I did that again. What would make you a hypocrite is not the fact that you messed up, but if you were unwilling to repent. That's where hypocrisy comes in. Because I see nothing in the scripture that says, after Jesus comes into my life, I'm going to live a perfect life. I see nothing. I see a fight that starts. A fight between my flesh and the spirit. The spirit who wants to do the will of God and the flesh who wants to do the will of self. And when I give in to the flesh, my proper response is to repent and follow the spirit. That's what I'm supposed to do. And every Christian who does that is not a hypocrite. But the Christian who sins and finds no need for repentance, that's the one who becomes the hypocrite. Because they make the sacrifice of Jesus of no effect. Because then they say, what did Jesus die for if I don't need to repent of my sin? If I don't need to turn away from it? So an honest walk of faith. I can tell you the biggest problems in my life have come in those times where I haven't consulted God, where the pressure has gotten to me and I run back to my old way of life before I knew Jesus. And it messes everything up. And I am tempted, almost like Sarah, saying, why are you doing this to me when I'm the one who's done it to myself? And what I really need to be saying is, why did I do this to me? Jesus, I just want to follow you. So number one, it begins with a passionate zeal to follow God because you believe his promises. Number two, it comes with stumbles along the way that threaten to upend the faith that you profess. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind. The stumbles that happen can be simply stumbles if we repent and keep our eyes on Jesus or they can become a huge barrier to faith. But the third thing that we see, and we see it from Abram throughout his life, is it comes with a perseverance that outlasts any trouble. Abraham keeps worshiping God no matter what. I think that's the one thing that you see in this context of this passage of Scripture. I just want to point out some of these verses real quick. Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. After he leaves his family, he comes into the land of Canaan. From there he went on toward the hills of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. 
Chapter 13, we see Abraham and Lot getting into a fight because their, their herds have grown so large and God has blessed them so. And they start fighting and said, we shouldn't fight. You choose the land. If you choose left, I'll choose right. If you choose right, I'll choose left. Just the whole land is before us. We shouldn't fight anymore. And he gives his younger nephew the privilege of choosing, which really should have been his. After he does so, God confronts Abram and says, I'm going to give all of this to your descendants. So at the end of the chapter, Genesis 13, 18, it says, So Abram moves his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. We continue to see that worship. When he goes and rescues Lot, who had put himself in a bad place, in a bad situation, where for the men of Sodom were continually sinning against the Lord. Abram didn't choose that type of company of people. And after he goes and rescues Lot, we read from verse 18, it says this, Now Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he, he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and give me and keep the goods, uh, keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high creator of heaven and earth that I have taken an oath that I will not accept anything belonging to you, not even a thread or a throng of a sandal so that you will never be able to say I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Adner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them have their share. And so we see at the end of this, Abram sides himself with Melchizedek, sees him as greater than himself because he's priest of Most High God, gives him a tenth of everything. And he goes further than that. He will have nothing to do with the king of Sodom, even though he freed him. He rescued him. Said, nope. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I know what kind of company you are. Give the men their share. I'll take nothing. I'm not going to be held, beholden to you for anything. I think it's important that we notice that Abram both surrounded himself with the right people and wouldn't surround himself with the wrong ones. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is as God gives Abram the promise that he's going to have a child, offspring from his own self. Verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Even though he would do wrong actions to try and make that come about, God still understood. He believed this promise that God was going to fulfill it. And then finally in chapter 17, We see the covenant of circumcision that's given to Abram as he's promised that now that son of promise is going to come to be. It's going to happen. He's 99 years old. And now you're going to have a son. And Abram's like, I'm going to have a son at this old age? And it's going to come from Sarai? Really? 
she's going to conceive when she's 90? This is past middle age, by the way, for them. I just want you to know that on the time scale we were talking about. You know, this is way past menopause. And she's going to have this joy of having a child, really? And so God, during that time, gives him a covenant of circumcision that, that every one of the promise would have this mark in their flesh. Verse 23. And on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born to his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. And Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. See, one of the things that I love about Abraham and why he's the father of faith is that he never stops worshiping God. Never. He makes mistakes. He he sometimes doesn't seek God the way he should, and it causes problems in his life. Amen? Anybody? Just me. I'll come to you guys for counseling. But he never stopped. No matter how things were, his his faith in God only grew. And here at circumcision, when he's given this promise and he's given this covenant of circumcision, guess what he does? He doesn't wait. He says, we're doing it now. It's like he's learned something along the way, right? He's recognizing that maybe I need to be obedient as soon as he gives me that opportunity to be obedient. Instead of waiting, doing it my own way, consulting the neighbors, talking to the culture. Maybe I should be seeking what God says. And God said, do this. I'm going to do it right now. Right now. 99 years old, you've given me that. It says that very day. That's commitment. That only happens with somebody who's grown in time with God, in a faithfulness with God. To be able to say, I'm still, you're still my God. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to learn from these mistakes that I've made when I have not asked you, when I've taken my eyes off you. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn around. And I'm going to learn what it means that when God says something to do right now, I'm not going to wait. But it took him 24 years to get there. A perseverance that didn't give up on God during those 24 years. From Genesis chapter 16 to chapter 17, there's 13 years. We don't know of any interaction between God and Abraham. Not saying there wasn't any, but there's nothing recorded in the scripture. No appearances of God. Nothing of significance to keep them going. Just a dogged faithfulness that Abraham is still going to serve God. To have anything less that, that, than that persevering commitment, I would probably tell you that's not faith. 
to be able to say, I'm going to continue to serve God, though the culture around me doesn't. I don't care what the, wor- what the world says. I'm going to continue to serve God even when it becomes unpopular. You know, you know, 20 years ago, we would be saying those things, but being around godly people was still kind of a popular thing. It was okay to be in the popular graces of God. And if you go into the big churches there, you can still have popular graces of God. I guess you have a, a subculture of that. But it's starting to get a little bit hard now if we want to stay faithful to Christ in everything. And this is where we find out whether or not we have an honest faith with, of, of walking with God or not. Because we've always said we would stand no matter what. But now you get that opportunity to stand. And you know how you stand? You persevere. I'm serving God no matter what. And in greater capacity. And in increasing obedience. And so that when God says something, even in this foreign culture that we're beginning to live in, even though it is unpopular, I'm going to do it. And I'm not even going to wait. Because that's what faith looks like. And anything less than that really isn't faith. We're going to be quiet about Jesus because it's hard. We're going to stop living for him because the sin that's all around us, that's easily for us to stumble into, is just too hard for us to avoid. So why not just give in to it? Because he's worth it. His promises are true. We go back to the first one, the zeal of believing his promises are what got us in this position to begin with. Why would I doubt him now when he has not shown himself anything else but faithful? That's what it means to have an honest walk of faith. Where are you in that? Are you a part of that number? Are you in that first part where everything's just like so awesome because you believe those promises and you're in that kind of honeymoon period between you and the Lord, which I think is amazing. Everybody should have it, right? You see everything differently. It's like I see the blessing of God everywhere. I see it in creation. I get to go down here and I get to talk to this person about Jesus. And somebody mentioned Jesus. I saw a Jesus bumper sticker. So I'm going to go tell them about Jesus and we're going to rejoice together. And you just get so excited about God. Everybody should have that. I wish that for you. Is that where you're at right now? Or in the second part, are you struggling with Maybe some of the decisions that you're making that aren't so godly. You've put a distance between you and God, not because God has wanted that distance, but because you've chosen that distance through the decisions that you've made. And it threatens to upend your faith because that tension is just there. There's only two ways to get rid of it. And only one way to get rid of it to preserve your faith. And that's repent. That's turn away. Say, I want to be right with God again. And you know, the beauty of Jesus is he meets you right there. He died for our sins. He wants to see you restored. I love Chris talking about during our communion time, talking about Peter denying Christ three times. And guess what? He meets him again says, do you love me? You know that I love you. 
and he restores him to faith. He doesn't turn around and say, you know, hasn't been long enough, Peter. You haven't, it hasn't taken too long. You have to, you have to show some pendants and take some. No, right now, this day, you can repent, turn around, be cleansed, and walk anew with Christ. That's a beautiful thing. And it might mean some changes in your life. And it might be some problems that you've caused yourself, but God will be there with you every step of the way. Maybe you're in that third part. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a while. And you're just needing that reminder of saying yes to Jesus over and over again. That reminder of saying yes to Jesus sooner and quicker and more obedient so that we can see the transformation, not just of your life, but of what he wants to do through your life for others. Where are you at? Where are you hoping to be? Because God's called us to make disciples. And I look forward to doing that with all of you. But you've got to have an honest walk of faith. Do you stand with me? If you don't know this Jesus, I do invite you this very day to understand the joy, the passion, the zeal that comes with knowing that the promises that he gives us through his death and resurrection are true. You can truly be forgiving your sins. You can truly have eternal life with him. I want you to have that zeal. I really do. If that's you today, don't leave today without coming forward, talking with one of us. Letting us pray with you, letting us talk to you about what that decision really means. There are some of you here might fall in that second category. You've been fighting with God. Mainly, you're really fighting with yourself, fighting with God. Would you give up that fight and come to Him in repentance, humbly? Let Him restore you in that joy of your salvation so you can walk anew with Him. The rest of us, Maybe we don't fall in those two categories, but you know what we need to do? We need to start saying yes to Jesus a lot quicker. Yeah, I should be reaching out to my friend. I should be reaching out to that person at work. I need to pray for the right opportunity. Today, tomorrow, take that opportunity. God has placed it before you. When are we going to admit that if they're on our heart because God's put them on our heart, we're supposed to be acting not waiting for some sort of weird revelation that if I see the flame of fire over their head, I'll know, Lord. be honest with you, it took Abraham 24 years to start obeying like that. It takes a walk of faith to do it, but the more we do it, the more we see God use us in amazing ways. And that's why I pray for each one of you. Maybe you need to be saying yes to God a little bit quicker. Whatever your need, our elders are going to be up front. We're going to pray for you guys. If you had any other needs, healing, other stuff, we're going to have healing prayer afterwards in this back room. Please go to that if there's a need for healing prayer. Don't leave here unchanged. Restore that honest faith between you and God today. God, thank you so much for our time together. I pray that we would be men and women with an honest faith before you. 
As much as we would love to be perfect, none of us are. Sometimes we take our eyes off Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, but help us, dear Heavenly Father, to have the courage to repent, to have the humility to come before you, to turn away from these things that separate us from you, to to make this tension go away, not through anything we can do, but through a simple surrendering ourselves again to you in all all things, Lord. God, if there's any here who have never given their life to you, I pray in the name of Jesus that they would be able to start this honest walk of faith. Understanding that it's going to be a journey filled with excitement and joys as you transform and change their lives and, and they rely upon the promise that their sins are forgiven, that Jesus has truly died for them, that he's risen from the dead, and we get to live forever and ever in your presence. God, I thank you for that promise. I do. It's the foundation for why we are here and why we encourage one another. So help us this day and help us to say yes to what you're calling us to do faster and faster so that you can use us to change those around us. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for Abraham, father of faith, and the lessons through his life that we learn even this day as believers in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.